podcast or virtual church classroom study presented each week by yours truly, Pastor Dan, on behalf of the people of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. Today's lesson is taken again from the Christian Believer class written by J. Ellsworth Callis. This is lesson number 23, In Spirit and Truth. It is a study of the doctrine that supports our worship. Each week we bring you this lesson, this Bible study for all to hear as a kind of opportunity to be a part of something that you may not have time for right now. As always, we hope it won't replace your regular activity with a church of your choosing. This week's study is being recorded on Thursday, January the 11th. 2018. Let's open with the word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity to study together in whatever form we find ourselves, whether it be on the production line, in the car, in a quiet place, with our Bibles in our laps, or who knows what. And uh, we thank you that this binds us together just as your Holy Spirit brings us together. We ask, Father, that you use this lesson to help us to be enriched in our worship, and most of all, in knowing you with all of our heart and mind, so that we might actually get in tune with your heart and mind. Amen. today is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. It's verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Our key hymn is, O Worship the King, verses 1 and 4. Verse 1 says, O worship the King, all glorious above, O gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilion in splendor, and girded with praise. And verse 4 says, Frail children of dust, and feeble as frail, in you we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. This week I am going to do something I've never done before. I'm actually using modern technology to have my special guest, Bethany Sinkhorn, back in the studio again. She's gone home from her Christmas holiday with us, but uh, thanks to FaceTime, she's part of the broadcast again today. I had such a good time with her last week that I just thought I wanted to keep doing it. So, Bethany, welcome. It's great to have you here again and uh, I can't tell you how much it means to me. So uh, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be back again. Awesome. This week is uh, Lesson 23 in Spirit and Truth. It's about worship. And and uh, I did something for you this week that I didn't do last week, which was to actually give you some prompts ahead of time so you'd have a little bit of an opportunity to prepare uh, so, so basically, as we begin to discuss the, the meaning of worship and the doctrine behind it, the, one of the things that we, uh, 
that we want to do, I think, to begin with is just is ask a couple of fundamental questions, like, why do we worship? And what's the whole point of worship anyway? And what makes worship uh, particularly Christian? So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, why should people worship? Well, I was thinking about it since you sent me that stuff. And what works best for me is to relate it to what I spend most of my time doing. And what I spend most of my time doing is talking to kids. Um, and I was thinking about the fact that well, I'm really working on mindfulness with students. And for me, worship is a lot like practicing mindfulness. Um, so I guess I, I should clarify mindfulness. Mindfulness is like um, focusing on what's going on in the world around you, focusing on the present moment and really absorbing that and then processing it. And I think that one of the reasons that we worship is to focus on and process the word of God. Hmm. So it's similar to mindfulness for me. I think I try to be very mindful in worship because of that. That's pretty cool. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I like that. Um, So worship makes us uh, focus on God and makes us mindful of God. That's a pretty good, pretty good way to look at it. And what do you think the main point is? Is it the mindfulness then? I I guess I feel like the main point of worship should always come back to the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I think that I I mean I think that's something that you have instilled in me all my life is that worship should be centered around God's word. So for me, I think, yeah, I guess it's being mindful of scripture and applying scripture. Um, but then I guess worship is also about the the praise piece, but I don't know how to delve into that yet. Okay. All right. Well, so, so it's mindfulness of God and, I guess the assumption is that God is present. Yeah. You know, that that to be mindful of God is to not only be mindful of the things of God, but to actually be mindful of God's presence. Yeah. And uh, that would explain then why so many worship settings are intentionally uh, religious in their form. Uh, You know, cathedrals with stained glass and high ceilings and that sort of thing. Um, You and I have talked in the past about how, uh, at least for me anyway, I find that I'm able to experience God in a more mindful way when I'm in a really old-fashioned worship setting in in an old church that's quiet and... uh, you know, on pews that creak and uh, halls that echo and with paintings on the ceiling. And in no way does that suggest that those things are required for worship, but it just happens that that helps me to be more mm-hmm. mindful of God. So so worship is mindfulness of God, and it helps to be in a setting where you can be more focused on God. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think so. And what do you think is unique about Christian worship? 
I guess when I was reading that, I was thinking as opposed to what? Um, so I didn't know if it was like as opposed to other religions and their forms of worship or um, or even more broadly like Christian worship versus people who, you know, worship at the throne of the Beatles. Hmm. So I wasn't sure like... Um, I think because I think there's something much more, again, mindful. That's like my word of the day, I guess, um, about Christian worship versus somebody who's equally passionate about a rock band. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, but I wasn't sure if it, that question was more about that differentiation or Christian worship, worship versus other forms of worship and other religions. But, you know, I think in a roundabout way, you said something really important about worship that may bring us back to the question of what's Christian worship versus other kinds of worship. It's fair to say that if someone's binge-watching on a show that they really like on Netflix, they're worshiping. Or if they're fishing or they're engaged in some hobby or something that's really meaningful to them, it's a kind of worship if it really means being mindful of the thing about which you are passionate. Yeah. So, uh, so that would suggest then that Christian worship is unique because we believe that we are worshiping someone who isn't physically present, at least not that most of us can perceive, and yet we believe is there. And this is what we would call the Holy Spirit, I guess. So, so in a sense, the thing that makes Christian worship unique is that it isn't a uh, a, a ritual or or something done in the hope that God's paying attention. It's done in the sense that because of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we feel that we are gathered in his name, but also in his presence. And that is really a unique uh, experience. Uh, when we look at the, the study for this week, one of the things Dr. Callis really wants us to know is, is the doctrinal uh, background for our worship and doctrines being the kind of boundaries or standards that, that Christians hold mostly in common uh historically speaking you know in the old testament uh there was a very sense a uh, very real sense of god's presence in the old testament especially like in the days of the tabernacle and the temple because they felt that god actually met them there um in which case i worship maybe more like an old jew in that sense because i think that I find God's presence easier to experience in certain settings. Yeah. Uh, now that's that's kind of going off a little bit on a tangent, but so so the lesson that Callus wants us to consider is that that uh, that it really began with with people having an encounter with God. You've heard me say this uh, for years in the church because I like to mention it, especially at weddings, for example. I'll say to people that that a worship space ought to at least have an altar. Um, now I'm not like autocratic about that. I'm not going to demand it, 
but I like to I like to ask people to use an altar at least in a place that we're going to have worship, simply because it goes back as far as as probably Adam and Eve. But the Bible gives us evidence that uh, at least their sons Cain and Abel were sacrificing on an altar. Because we have the story of Cain and Abel that tells us they both brought sacrifices to God. And so there's a sense that there was a place of worship that at least involved an altar where the sacrifice was given and where it was accepted. And so I've taken that as my justification for always needing an altar in a worship space. And... um, I, I was just thinking, it's kind of funny, in our setting at, at uh, Jasper and Shiloh, it, we have worship in a more traditional setting in the sanctuary, and there's a beautiful altar. And then we have worship in that uh, life center that is much more contemporary and multi-purpose in nature. And without really being conscious of it, it only took me about two months of being their pastor before I had a table that I designated as the altar. And I wasn't even conscious of it. It just didn't feel right to to use what they had, which was more of a platform to set the communion elements on on those Sundays when we had communion. And I really wanted something that was there, uh, even between me and the people, so that when I'm preaching the word or whatever I'm doing as their worship leader and their pastor, I've got this table that I'm saying it's our altar. So there's a sense that at least in my mind, that a altar is a sign of God's presence. And um, that, to me, goes all the way through Scripture, because wherever people have had a close encounter with God, they put up an altar. And they're still discovering them to this day. You know, archaeologists will be out in the middle of of, uh, the Holy Land somewhere, and they'll stumble across something that begins to appear not so much like a random rock, but actually a carefully carved and prepared altar. So that's my that's my fundamental rationale for having an altar. Now, in the New Testament, we have a new covenant with God through Jesus, and the altar probably isn't the thing as much as the cross, because the cross becomes the symbol of the one and final sacrifice, which is Jesus. And so from a doctrinal standpoint, the altar isn't as essential as the cross. And so now we've got crosses everywhere in our worship spaces. And so in a typical Protestant church, you have an altar that's usually got a couple of candles representing the Holy Spirit, the book, the Bible representing the Word of God or the mind of God. And then you have a cross of some kind representing the final sacrifice. So to sort of bring all these elements together to give you a picture of the things that constitute our Christian worship. And uh, I, I would find myself at odds with some people in, in Protestant church when I say this, but I, I even kind of like it in Catholic church when you look toward the altar and you see the crucifix and you see the corpus on the cross, and you see the wounded, broken Jesus, and he's always directly above the altar in a Catholic church. And so the the picture is very plain. 
It's very simple. And at some point, they're going to celebrate the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Jesus, on that same altar. And so they're drawing a picture with you of the priest bringing it down to where we are. So so anyway, I, again, have gone off on a tangent a little bit. But uh, so if I were going to say what I think doctrinally Christian worship is, it's got to be that God required sacrifices, the shed blood of an innocent in order to compensate for our sin. And ultimately, Jesus gives us the final solution to that. And the symbols of that become the physical expressions of a invisible and divine uh, uh, covenant or agreement that God has made with us through Jesus. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that that's kind of and you you just caused me to think all of that. So good job. Oh, and something that I heard you say that I think also helps draw a line between Christian worship and other forms of worship is that it's a reciprocal relationship. So we get things out of it. We also get things out of you know binging our Netflix show, but it's reciprocal. So God's also getting something from worship too. Whereas if I'm watching a show on Netflix, there's not really anything, there's no back and forth. Yeah. I think that that's significant too. Boy, that's good. That's really good. I like that. Um, That's good stuff. Well done. So, uh, so moving forward then, if we have this sort of tradition and, and and worship is it's really it's kind of a subjective thing too, isn't it? And yeah. uh, as a pastor, I can tell you that the number one headache that pastors deal with is all the varying tastes of people regarding worship. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny how you meet people who are convinced that worship isn't worship unless it's on Sunday morning. That worship isn't worship. If it includes drums, uh, or if you know, and and there's so much of what we call worship that is subjective, and I open by saying that I find it easier to worship in a kind of setting that some people maybe you wouldn't like that well, but those are tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I wouldn't want to say that I resent it, but but deeply, I find it deeply frustrating as a pastor to try to to create as much harmony in the church as I can when I've got a few people who are so sure that if their 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 their, t- their tastes are offended that well, they make it a doctrinal problem they they want to try to convince me the house expert that I'm violating some sacred doctrine and they'll throw out the word tradition mm-hmm. but worship and tradition aren't the same thing are they you know, it's really subjective, and uh, worship is. Cha- I I saw something on uh, Facebook the other day. I follow a group of Methodists who are uh, deeply. It's called the Order of Saint Luke, and they are deeply uh, committed to you know a, an almost Catholic version of of Methodism. Uh, you know, I guess it would be more Anglican, but. Uh, somebody posted something where right here in Indiana, there are um, uh, an order of monks that um, is uh, native-born American men 
who dress the way we saw them dress in Israel, where they wear all black and they have the kind of funny hats with the cowls around their hats and they wear the long beards. And and uh, you remember those monks that were down in that, uh, what was it, St. George's that's down in the Wadi and, and yeah. they're, they're way down there in the deep valley where nobody can get to them. And, you know, uh, we got a group of those that are here in Indiana. So, you know, apparently uh even the most ancient forms of worship and uh devotion to god are are still practiced but they are subjective um i think probably one of the cruelest and perhaps most unchristian things that we can do is as you would say yuck someone else's yum Sorry. right <laughs> yeah, because that's what you always tell me, you know, you, you, when you're counseling with your kids, you say, don't yuck his yum. And uh, uh, because we're talking about taste. Yeah. Um, so that brings us back to the fundamental question, then what what Christian worship is ultimately is determined by the certain things that would have to be present in order for it to feel like Christian worship. So based on the scripture readings, what would you say that is? I, I gave you a list of of prompts uh, for the scripture readings. Like from the Exodus, it says uh, that they had a particular ceremony they practiced uh, to kind of honor the covenant that God made with them, like the Passover ceremonies and celebrations, for example. Huh. And um, Psalms is a whole book of praise songs, basically, for God. Um, Isaiah, uh, I think, is fascinating because the passage that we read last week for Isaiah kind of reminds us that God is much more interested in how our worship translates into action or justice as opposed to worship that looks like a sacrifice. So. That was something I started to go on to when you were talking earlier is, is you know, do, do you find that you know, you've been in church all your life and like me, you've watched all the different ways that people worship. Do, do you find that a lot of people just sort of go through the motions, but they don't seem to be particularly engaged? Yeah, I think I think also there are people and I, I think we're, everybody's been guilty of it where like you go for certain elements of worship. Like some people go just for music. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think of other examples, but music seems like a big one for a lot of people. Well, it's huge. <laughs> like, you know, like, and, and I think that there are churches who have, they have, um, altered their worship in a way to where like it's much more heavily focused on that piece to where it's like a concert experience and then maybe preaching and prayer and some of the other elements of worship at the end, but it's like a concert. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what was it your, your brother was telling us, Jonathan said uh, not long ago since he, uh, moved to a new community. He and his wife, Katie, were trying to find a place to go to worship, and so they were testing out different churches to see what worked for them. And And his comment about one church was, as you could see, that everything was staged, even the pastor's 
gestures, you know, that he had marks on the stage he was hitting and everything. And it was like going to a, to a a Broadway type show. Yeah. And, uh, that may have been really meaningful for the people who experienced it, but it seemed like for John, that was not cool. That didn't seem authentic enough for him. Yeah. Um, so I don't, if I answered the question. No, no, you did fine. I mean, you know, we're having a conversation and 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 it's so much better than than uh just me sitting here pontificating. You know, I remember I used to call this segment where I just stood sort of stood sat in front of the microphone and lectured. I called that pastoral pontification. Um yes. I don't really want to do that. It, it's much more uh uh my mind gets better with the the interaction. So now let's see in the readings in the New Testament uh Matthew chapter 6 says pretty plainly that this is a response to God and not a show. You know how in church on Sunday we'll take the offering and I always kind of tell people don't forget this is an act of worship. Mm-hmm. Uh when we receive God's tithes and the offerings and and I keep hoping that by just repeating that little phrase over and over year after year that people recognize that what they're doing is not helping pay the church's light bill. Not paying the pastor's salary. I mean, they, all of those things happen as a result of their giving. But for them, in that moment, at that hour of worship, their giving is is one of the ways in which they say to the very real and present God, I trust you. Mm-hmm. I give to you because I want to. I give to you because it's a way of saying that I have more than enough because of you. And, and all you ask is for me to do this gesture as an act of worship, yeah, you know. And it's 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 an offering of self more so than an offering of money. Like it's an extension, like you said, it's 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 worship in that it's an extension of our trust in God, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, you know, as I've gotten older and I've been doing this for a while, it's become so clear to me that that, and I don't know that this is uniquely Christian, but the reality is is that that uh, to to go to a specific place and to offer a specific kind of worship is meaningful in one way if it's ultimately about you and what you get out of it, and it's meaningful in another way if it's all about the object of your worship, you know, and and so uh, we've been all over the place here, but if we were going to to try to to make a roadmap for perfect worship, the first thing we would say is, is, who's this about? You know, the first question we would ask when we go into worship is, who are we, who are we here to satisfy? Who are we here to, to, uh, to glorify? You know, if, if it's about whether I'm entertained, whether I'm inspired, whether I get something out of it, you know, how many times have pastors heard people say, I'm just not being fed? <laughs> and and the funny thing is, is I don't want to sound like I'm spiteful about that, but because because on one level that's a real concern. I, I'm, there are pastors out, or pastors. I mean, there are churches that are serving up junk. You know, um, if, if we're talking about spiritual food here, then we don't need to be serving up white bread that has no nutritional value whatsoever, but it's soft and spongy and pretty, and so it. It tastes great with a little mayo or peanut butter and jelly or whatever. 
and and the problem is it has no nutritional value. And and if somebody says, I don't want to go to a church where they only serve up white bread and I'm not getting fed real nutrition, that's a fair thing for people to say. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, the people who say that and the ones who tend to say that the most often and with with a, a readiness that's a little scary, you know, like like I've had people that I really believe have agonized over the decision to move on to another church who have said, I'm not getting fed. And I had to acknowledge, you're right, it's, it's not coming uh, from every aspect of the church and therefore you, you need something maybe for your children or whatever. I mean, this was a long time ago, but, but then there are those other people that they've probably said that to the last eight pastors over the last eight years, you know, and, and we've seen that too. So, so worship, as you very well stated, is a give and take, you know, that, that we go in expecting to encounter God and God expects something from us when we come in. And so there's, there's both going on there. Um, let's see here. I want to move on. Um, so Christian religion and Christian church in particular, I was just looking at Dr. Callis's notes here. Um, Dr. Callis points out that, that maybe the most uniquely Christian thing is the fact that we worship on, on, uh, Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection. So if we were going to narrow down Christian worship a little more tightly, uh, and didn't ask the question in such a broad way, what we might say is this compared to Jewish worship. And the reason being because the Bible is essentially the same up to a point. And so if you ask a Bible-believing Orthodox Jew why they worship on, on uh, Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown, you know, they would say with with perfect justification that that's the biblical mandate, that that's the day of rest, that's the Sabbath, that this is the day that God has ordained for us to 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 not labor for our own intent and our own purpose, but to just relax and focus on God, which is a really great idea. Um, but Christian worship really isn't about that. It's really about the resurrection of Jesus. And so we worship on Sunday. Uh, because tradition says to us that that would have been the third day, the day of the resurrection, right? Jesus died. They had to get him in the grave quickly because it was the beginning of the Sabbath. So by that, we assume that it was Friday night just before sundown when they put him in the grave. And then they didn't do anything about it until Sunday because they weren't allowed to during the day of rest. And so they came back on Sunday to to properly prepare his body, only to find that he had arisen from the dead. So so that's where we get our concept of Sunday worship. And worship then, in the Christian context, really started as a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And I've heard this said by different preachers before, and I think it bears repeating that that the ideal church service on Sunday morning would be Easter Sunday every Sunday of the year, because that's essentially what it's supposed to be. 
And of course, in our traditions of the Christian church in America, Christians generally don't make it every Sunday, and they generally don't bring the same sort of enthusiasm on Sunday uh, most of the time. But boy, on Easter Sunday, they pack the place from wall to wall, wear their finest clothing, and we go all out presenting a service that has extraordinary elements because rather than celebrating the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection once a year. So so that's that's kind of the lesson in a nutshell. Um, when uh, Before I let you off the hook here for today's virtual church classroom lesson, let me ask you some of the, the questions that um, I'm going to review with the rest of our class uh, before we close out the podcast. But, uh, you know, when you think about your own experiences of public worship, how much of what you prefer in worship has to do with nostalgia, emotion, and aesthetics? Gee, it's almost like Dr. Callis knew we were going to talk about that. Um, tell me, I, I pick your brain regularly, and, and uh, for years I've joked that you are my pop culture consultant. You know, you, you help me ch- to stay in touch with things that I've grown out of despite my desire not to. And So what do you think people, younger people, young adults like yourself... Are you know right now church isn't something that a lot of them even know anything about or want anything to do with, but those who do, what do you think they would want? Me or other people my age? Huh? Me or other people my age? Huh? I I. You said other people like people my age so are you wanting what they want or what i oh, i don't know tell me what you want that's what i that's what i was really driving at is what do you suppose uh i mean i know you grew up in the church and you still like it which makes you weird <laughs> in a lot of respects but but you know you you've since since we came to jasper and you stayed where you live you've been going to a church that you really enjoy what is it about that church that has spoken to you in a way that really reaches you? Um, I guess for me, and it's funny that you brought up John and Katie's church search too, because it kind of, they're based on talking to them, their church search and mine both kind of we wanted Bible based preaching, um, and we wanted to be somewhere where the Bible was front and center, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of why I was asking if you wanted to know mine versus other people, because I think a lot of other people my age really get a lot out of the theatrical piece. Right. The concert experience and the theatrical stuff, that doesn't do a whole lot for me, though. Um, what I want, I guess, it, because because I can listen, like, I listen to Christian music all day when I'm at work. So I don't really need that on Sunday morning too. I think praise is important in worship, but for me, I want interpretation of the word. Yeah. Um, yeah. from a different perspective than my own. And I think I've gotten that where I'm attending and that's probably one of the reasons I like it the most. Um, so I, like, yeah, that's, 
that's probably the biggest piece for me, but I think a lot of other people, especially in my age group, they do like the theatrics. They like when there's drama and skits and, um, and those are great because they're different ways of interpreting biblical teaching. Um, but I think that they're looking for that, like get out of your seat, energizing stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, which is awesome. I love that stuff too. Um, you know, I'm not the person who's probably going to be like dancing in the aisle or anything, but it's still great. Um, but yeah, I think, and I do think there are a lot of people my age who are looking for Bible based though. I think, I think there's actually, and we've talked about this before. I think there's actually a shift back toward that more traditional, um, I guess, liturgical. Yeah. Kind of worship. Yeah. Um, a lot of people my age are looking for that. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of think we're going to see a shift back toward more of that. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, Christian books, uh, the, a lot of the books written for pastors and people like that, uh, parachurch religious organizations, a lot of them have been suggesting that for some time now. They've been saying that the next generations are going to be much more interested. I, I think it's interesting because there's a couple of things that you brought up there that, that are that are intriguing. One of them is something you and I talk about all the time, which is sociological dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, it just stands to reason that if you went to church with parents who really wanted the song and dance and show and contemporary music and all that stuff and you know, an awful lot of, of of really trendy things from around the late '90s and the early 2000s are now passe in church because, frankly, those parents who really craved that uh, have raised a generation of children who want to go in a different direction from their parents, and that's as old as humanity. That's that's a sociological fact that in in most societies. One generation will tend to reject some or all of the values of a previous generation, um, if only to rebel and find its own way. Um, what we hope is is that they're grounded sufficiently that they come back to the the fundamentals and the significant things, but maybe with a new format, a new way of doing it that reaches them. And the sad thing is, is once they've really created the change they've sought, their kids will probably try to come up with something new. So so yeah. my feeling as a pastor is the church has got to be extraordinarily flexible. We got we got to have very pliable walls and you know we we have to be willing to just kind of you know try not to throw old generations out every time something new comes along but at the same time don't create such rigid resistance to the things of the next generations that they feel unwelcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then ultimately end up rejecting God when they really are just rejecting something that doesn't meet their tastes. And so we're yeah. back to that whole thing of tastes again. But the other thing you said that was kind of neat is you were mentioning liturgy. I guess it wouldn't be fair to do a virtual Bible study about the, the uh, doctrine of worship without acknowledging the fact that liturgy has always been a big part of worship. And liturgy goes all the way back to... Really, even I'm sure, even though it's not written anywhere that I know of, 
uh, when those people were standing at the altar making their sacrifice, there were certain things they probably always said. And their children watched them, and then when their children became adults and they did the same thing, what did they do? They the, Abraham's kids, or, or, or as a bad example, he just had the one. <laughs> but but you know the the the, the various children of, of these these patriarchs of the church, um, they watched how their fathers did the worship, and they did kind of the same thing, and they probably said the same things, and and uh, so one person's tradition is just another person's imitation of what they saw. And uh, and then we write it down because it's so darn good. And as soon as we write it down, it becomes liturgy. Yes. Um, I mean, that's kind of the, the story of liturgy in a nutshell. Um, liturgy is not a bad thing, really, because it's just sort of a mechanism. It's just a way of helping people um, make sure that they don't uh, miss the high points, you know, um, so there's this there's this fine line we walk with our worship where we we walk between tastes and traditions and hard things that need to be observed and honored consistently throughout the duration of of the church's existence I guess you could say that is the the church capital C mm-hmm. Well all right I should probably wrap this up do you have more thoughts that you want to share anything you want to that was coming to mind and I just didn't give you a chance to say it. Um, <laughs> I actually think there was a question, but it's gone now. So it's probably not important for today. <laughs> I'm sorry to, sorry to hear that. <laughs> I, uh, uh, but for the people who have participated in my live and in-person Bible studies, this won't seem unusual. Um, I just did a Bible study last night from the book of Joshua with a group of, I don't know, a dozen or so people. And it was very lively, but it went pretty much the way this did. You know, you, you, I ask questions, you talk, and then I go, and that really gets me to thinking. And before you know it, I'm off on one of my things. And, and fortunately, most people say, well, that's all right, because you are kind of the guy that knows more about this. But that's this is not really, you know, superior knowledge as much as it's like I think I even joked with somebody last night. I said, well, it is what you pay me to do after all. So <laughs> so I guess the premise behind this this uh, podcast is similar in that respect. Well, OK, Um so before we end this segment, let me just say again, thank you for being a part of this. I think if this records well, that we might have to make a habit of it because our listeners, all seven of them, uh, or eight, I'm not really sure, seem to really enjoy hearing your voice as much as mine, if not more. And uh, I think it livens it up quite a bit. So thanks for being a part of this. And, I'm glad. Uh, I'm mighty proud of you and I love you. I love you too. All right. With Bethany's help, I think we've done a really good job this week of setting the stage for our language of faith segment. The language of faith is a uh, the way that we incorporate words that are pretty ordinary in most respects, but we give them sacred meaning by adding them to the language of, 
of worship. And so uh, here are our phrases that uh, I often sort of jokingly refer to as church speak. But uh, the language of faith, words like worship, you know, the word worship is basically uh, derived from uh, the term worth-ship. So when we worship something, we are acknowledging its special worth. And so worth-ship or worship is what we do when we come into communion with others and in the presence of God. Therefore, terms like adoration of God, communion with God, communion, a word that means community, and uh, in a very real sense, harmony with God and each other, confession of sins. Before whom else can we confess our sins and not be heard with unjust judgment? only God. Therefore, we praise, we pray. Worship can be private and it can be public. We offer ourselves to God, as Bethany so astutely pointed out. We worship in spirit and in truth, as the scripture has commanded us to do. Our key scripture today tells us to worship in spirit and truth. That's a kind of an interesting phrase. What does that mean to you exactly? What is to worship in spirit and in truth. I'm going to let you stew over that one. Hearing the Word. When we talk about hearing the Word, for a lot of people that means read the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, but I would say that the Word of God is more than the Bible. It is, in fact, the very mind of God imparted to the creatures of God. Faith asks questions. So here are questions along with that uh, one that I just gave you that I'd like you to consider through the week. These are for you to contemplate and to discuss with others. As you think about your own experience of public worship, how much of what you prefer in worship has to do with your nostalgia, your emotion, your aesthetics? I asked Bethany that question earlier and she just laughed. How do you separate these elements from the primary issue of worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Think about the worship services in your church. What about the services would make worshipers aware that praise of God is one of the primary purposes of worship? What's the most fulfilling element in your own prayer life? What's the most frustrating If you could plan the worship service for your church, what would it look like? Why would you plan it in this way? You know, as your pastor, and many of you who listen have uh, been in communion with me at Shiloh, uh, I welcome that conversation. I don't mind hearing from you and, and listening to your ideas about worship. In fact, I encourage it because... Together, we can truly find spirit and truth. Here's today's doctrinal truth we call believing and living. Because we, the church, believe God desires our worship and prayer, I will seek God earnestly in spirit and truth. And all God's people said, Amen.
Well, I hope you've been blessed this week by the lesson on worship. Next week, we'll talk about discipleship, living the Christian life. That'll be lesson number 24 in our Christian Believer series. And uh, this uh, will include a number of readings from Scripture that I will post in this uh, podcast uh, description box so you can read those at your leisure. And, of course, the Nicene Creed as a constant reminder of the structure of our study together. I, uh, as I said, I hope you've been blessed. Let's close with the prayer from Susanna Wesley, who was John Wesley's mother, written in the area of 1670 to about 1742, which was her lifespan. So here's a prayer of Susanna Wesley. Enable me, O God, to collect and compose my thoughts before an immediate approach to Thee in prayer. May I be careful to have my mind in order when I take upon myself the honor to speak to the Sovereign Lord of the universe, remembering that upon the temper of my soul depends, in very great measure, my success. Thou art infinitely too great to be trifled with, too wise to be imposed on by a mock devotion and dust abhor a sacrifice without a heart. Help me to entertain an habitual sense of thy perfections as an admirable help against cold and formal performances. Save me from engaging in rash and precipitate prayers and from abrupt breaking away to follow business or pleasure as though I had never prayed. Amen. Wow, what a great prayer. It's a little bit old English, but I think we can all agree that this is a perfectly reasonable way to challenge ourselves to enter into our relationship with God, particularly in the form of worship. I want to thank you again for your support for this podcast. Simply by listening to it, I am honored. I also want to encourage you to please support your local church. And if you're someone from Southwest Indiana and Jasper in particular, come and see us at Shiloh. I especially enjoy hearing from you. I like to know who's listening and how it helps us, uh, helps you in your life. And uh, so please let me know. And uh, feel free to contact us. You can reach us at our brand new website, shilohum.org. Shilohum.org. That's S H I L O H U M.org. We'd look forward to seeing you there. You can get pictures of the staff. You can even see my mug and send me an email. I'd love to, love to get to know you better. But for now, God bless you and go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Music